Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail! This is the podcast where we read your letters here at the Critically Claimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Witty Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I'm drinking tea. Nice. Is How very classy nice? of you. He's got one pinky up. Oh, no, no, he's classy. No pinkies. I chug this crap. Uh, I'm drinking some uh, Earl Grey Supreme from Hardy and Sons. Hardy and Sons is a very generously provided me. Hardy and Sons is a very, very nice Earl Grey tea. If anyone has Earl Grey, is my favorite. It just happens to be Picard's favorite. If anyone has any recommendations for a better Earl Grey than Harney and Sons, I would love to hear it. Harney well, and I, Sons is my go-to. I can give you one right now. Ooh. Uh, this is actually something uh, I didn't know existed until I saw a tin in your house, so you know of its existence. Oh, which one? Uh, Mark, Marcus Samuelson, who's a oh, celebrity yeah. chef, mm. uh, he's been like a judge on Chopped and stuff, has his own tea line. It's, oh. it's called Ambessa. And okay. he puts out uh, an Earl Grey, but it's like a variant on Earl Grey called the Earl of Harlem. Oh, is that what that and, is? Okay, uh, then, yeah, yeah, that is a good tea. And, that is yeah, good. I have that. That is that's an a good excellent tea. tea. I didn't realize... Um... I don't know it's if so it's still on. Related. It's still on the market, but there's still like okay. some markets that'll like mail right. order it to you. Well, in any case, we like to. Anyway, but that's not why we're here. Uh, this is we've got mail. This is where you control the conversation here. At Critically acclaimed. Here's how it works: you email us or you send us snail mail, and then uh, we read your letters and we answer them and we respond to any questions mm-hmm. you have, any uh, corrections you might have to make over something we may have said on our podcast. We love to learn. That's how we become better people. Uh, and, uh, yeah, kind of the floor is yours. So if you want to email us, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, and, uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Uh, send us a physical letter to P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Awesome. Um... Yeah, I guess that's it. Let's uh, let's just uh, get humming along, shall we? All Whitney, right. what's our first letter? Uh, here's a letter from Fab. Hello, Fab. Hi, Fab. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Since discovering the actress Carol Landis a few years ago, I've been transfixed by her tragic life and lore. Mm. Landis was a 1940s actress who never made it big like other 40s actresses like Rita Hayworth, because have easily have been as famous as Marilyn Monroe. Carol Landis was charming and talented and was mostly cast in supporting character roles. She had a deep and sexy voice. When Hollywoodland started to dispose of her, she was left vulnerable to substance abuse and a lover who broke her heart. Due to this, she died of an overdose, but with but with mysterious circumstances. Oh my god. Personally, I would love to see a biopic of this obscure actress who most people don't know about. Landis' legacy is in danger of being forgotten entirely. Have you guys seen any Carol Landis films? Uh, also, is there an actor or actress who you feel is underappreciated or largely forgotten, but you feel they deserve their biopic or miniseries to commemorate them? Sincerely, uh, Best Fabsy. Um, I have seen one Carol Landis film that I am aware of. Uh, Carol Landis, uh, was, she was in Topper Returns, which I've always been meaning to get to, mm-hmm. but I've only seen the original Topper. She was in the original 1 million BC. Yeah. Nice. Uh, which, uh, was a cave person epic with dinosaurs or rather, uh, lizards with like spines, like taped to their back. <laughs> Just iguanas that they filmed up close. Yeah. Uh, it's fun. It's, mm. uh, uh, low rent kind of, kind of cheap. It was actually, uh, at the time it was actually kind of a big deal and was nominated for Oscars for its visual effects and score. But nowadays you look at it, and it's kind of hard not to say yeah. that's a little cheap. But uh, anyway, it's um, it's a fun flick, uh, but I can't say that I really know her too well. Uh, yeah, I'm looking over her uh, her filmography here. She has a lot of uncredited roles. It looks like she was a dancer in a lot. She was uh, mm. Girl in Beret at Santa Anita Bar in the 1937 version of A Star is Born, so I've oh, seen yeah. that. Um, she was in The Adventures of Robin Hood. 
as a guest at the party. Yeah, um, wearing one of those giant conical hats. Yeah, so I've, I've like, probably seen her around, but I don't think I've ever, ever seen anything where she's, <clears throat> excuse me, where she's, like, featured. Yeah. Um, yeah, 1 million BC, Roadshow, Top of Returns. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I've w- I Wake Up Screaming. She was in that one. Have you seen that? I think I did. I think I saw that okay. one a long time ago. Uh, yeah, I'm looking over their filmography yeah, and her, now. And her last film was a 1948 film called Brass Monkey. And yeah, she yeah. died young. She died in the 40s um, yeah. at, at the age of 29. Uh, Way and, too young. And uh, she married and then had the marriage annulled and then married again Irving Wheeler all in 1934. Well, that must have been a hell of a year. Yeah. So, uh, and then she was married to three other people besides. So, wow, mm. what an active life. That's great. Um, yes, I'm afraid I'm not really familiar with Carol Landis, but I, I'm just just looking at her Wikipedia page. I'm thinking, mm. wow, this is a person I need to know more about. There's so many fascinating figures from the early days of Hollywood that, you know, really do warrant their own, their story being told. And honestly, given the big screen Hollywood treatment, even if they weren't big screen, like big Hollywood stars at the time. Yeah. Um... I, I, I don't know whose story is the most fascinating, though. I, I wish I had a little bit more research done uh, behind the scenes. I know, uh, you know, Audrey Hepburn when she was... That's Audrey Hepburn. They've already made biopics of her. Yeah. But, like, she was, like, you know, involved in, like, spy shit during the war. <laughs> uh, you know, leaving, like, doing dead drops uh, uh, of, like, important messages to the, uh, you know, to the, I think, in Vichy, France. But, um yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's so many people who I just think are, are just really, really interesting. Um, I would love to see... I don't know if there's a story there. I would love to see maybe a biopic about Ethel Smith. Ethel Smith was probably the greatest organ player of all time. <laughs> Ethel Smith mm-hmm. was, to the organ, what Buckethead is to a guitar. <laughs> Ethel Smith fucking rules. And if you hear any Ethel Smith shit, you're just like, Whoa! Uh, she actually had a pretty decent, uh, 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 Hollywood career. She, uh, appeared in quite a few films as an, as an organ player. Um, her biggest hit was, uh, a, a cover of Tico Tico, okay. uh, which she performed in a movie called Bathing Beauty in 1944. You can watch a fun clip from that online or just over any clip of it, of her stuff I online. She's great. Recording. Cause I yeah. collected a lot of the records in the ultra lounge. I think that version made it onto the ultra lounge. Yeah. I, I, I bet it did. It was quite a big deal uh there's also a really cool movie she did uh late in her career uh called wicked wicked uh wicked wicked is one of my favorite gimmick movies it mm-hmm. is a film that is actually uh two films playing side by side they're telling the same story it's about a serial okay. killer uh slaughtering people at a vacation resort uh but on one side of the screen the general movie is playing you know someone mm-hmm. Sneaking around or asking a, a questions, uh, you know, a detective asking questions. The second screen is additional information. Oh, okay. So, like, someone might be telling a detective what their alibi was, but then on the second screen, we see what they were really doing. Mm. Or someone's, like, maybe got some, like, personal baggage or something like that, and then you see, like, what they were up to in the war. And a lot of the movie is set to Ethel Smith's organ music and she actually appears in it as herself oh, just playing cool. the organ in a big chunk of the film uh so she's interesting i don't know if that's the most exciting movie i don't know what the movie is there though hmm. um that's the real ticket i would love to see a movie about or at the very least sideways about una o'connor 
That'd be great. I, I think love Uno, to see the Uno O'Connor movie. Uno O'Connor is one of the most interesting character actors we've ever had, at least as a performer. Or uh, what's yeah. her name? Uh, Uspenskaya. Um, oh yeah, I, yeah, I forgot yeah, her yeah, first yeah. name. She, um, she, well, she was in uh, the original Love Affair, wasn't she? Was yeah, she the yeah. mom in that. Yeah, Maria Uspenskaya. Yeah, um, she's cool. Yeah, she, she. I bet she has a very interesting story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, no one needs to do a story about some or all. Mm-hmm. I don't know who's maybe the best focal point. You'd have to do research on this. Of the uh, filmmakers who fled the Third Reich, you know they that's actually like, like a whole generation of that's filmmakers. A yeah. whole lot of them. I feel like there's that's actually like a really interesting mm-hmm. story. Wouldn't that be kind of cool to see like overlapping stories mm-hmm. of people like I don't know uh, Conrad Veidt and uh, uh, who else left? Who else fled? Uh, uh, Paul Lenny, Frank Happer. Yeah, like there yeah, you go. Just yeah. like you see all of them kind of get into yeah, the industry I, together. I, I like think kind Lube, of interesting. Lubitsch was one of those. Yeah, just uh, yeah. to follow them all together would be kind of fascinating. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know, honestly, I'd be mm. curious if anyone knows, especially from the golden age, especially if, are there any less famous film personalities, actor, director, anyone of note, not like your big names, like Louis B. Mayer or Cary Grant, but like people who might've slipped through the cracks of history yeah. who have really interesting lives. Please let us know. Mm. We'd be very curious to hear, like, if I you have to, someone who just has a really cool story that needs to be told. Th- there's a lot of uh, personalities like that in the music world. I'd love to see oh, biographies yeah. like. Like, I'd love to see a biopic of Mrs. Miller. Uh, do you know Mrs. Miller? Not a fan. Uh, she did covers of pop songs, but she studied like classical opera. Uh-huh. So she would sing in this sort of like, uh, like uh, falsetto vibrato huh. kind of singing, and like to the the tune of Downtown. <laughs> when you're alone and life is making you lonely. Oh, I have heard yeah. that. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's probably, cool. Most people have heard yeah. some Mrs. Miller here and there. I, I would like to see it. I want to know her story. Now I want to know the story. Okay, you need to fictionalize this, uh-huh. but it's the story of the guy who created Alvin and the Chipmunks. Dave Seville, yeah. Yeah, it's about... Well, that, that, Ross Bagdasarian. Okay, it's that guy, but you do a fictionalized version of the story where... He claims the chipmunks are real, and he's got to keep the secret alive. <laughs> they were like, no, the chipmunks are just here. I swear. <laughs> Hold on, close the door. <laughs> Alvin, stay in there. Alvin. <laughs> he's got like he's got like an elaborate system of like police, so like drawers will open. Oh, they're, they're in there. <laughs> <laughs> or um, you know who has a really fascinating life is Bobby Pickett, Bobby Boris Pickett of mm. the Monster Mash fame. Oh yeah, because he was in movies a lot. Uh, he wasn't just the Monster Mash. He actually did like a. He had this real, a very interesting life, and he did a lot with it. And it, he was much, much more than just the Monster Mash. That's cool. Um, we didn't talk about it on our Star Trek podcast, but Bobby Pickett also did uh, maybe one of the first authorized Star Trek spoofs. Oh, it was called Star Trek. It was just an audio only thing that played on like novelty stations. Oh, I don't know that one. Do, do I know that one? Uh, that's no, not well, the one that's, that's... That's where we got the phrase Colossal Negative Space Wedgie. Oh, is that what that's from? That's where they that's made from. that up. Oh, no, okay. that's, that's taken directly from Bobby Pickett. I had no idea. That's hilarious. Yeah. Okay, that's it's cool. Like and look right outside, Jim. It's a Colossal Negative Space Wedgie of great power coming right for us. <laughs> well, I had no idea. Yeah. Well, let's move on. But thank you for that. And uh, we'll, keep, we'll, we'll keep our ears open. See if any other cool yeah. stories pop out. Uh, let's see. Another letter. Here is a letter from Starship. Hi, Starship. Hello, Starship. Uh, Dear sirs, I hope you're all doing well. Uh, Bibbs, I myself had a basal cell carcinoma removed last year. Oh, wow. Twice. Wow. Actually, since they didn't get it all the first time. I totally get how terrifying that is. I make sure to see my dermatologist regularly now because Mm -hmm. of the experience. I'm so glad you're okay. 
Thank you. If anyone uh, missed our episode of Critically Acclaimed, I mentioned um, we, we, our schedule has been somewhat more erratic than usual in April, and a big part of that was I had a skin cancer scare. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It seems to be fine now. The latest biopsy came back clear, so oh, fingers crossed they got it all. But, you know, it was scary. And it was very distracting, and I tried to put on my game face and do as many of these as I could, but there were there were just some bad days, and I just wasn't being as productive as I could, and so it was a whole thing. So, But thank you so much, and I'm glad you're okay. And yes, and again, I remind everybody, if you have any suspicious uh, moles, anything at all, I highly recommend you just go to your dermatologist. Best case scenario, they'll tell you you're totally fine. Worst case scenario, you're still in and out really, really quick for a test. It's yeah, yeah. not as scary as I thought it would be. Anyway, uh, Starship yeah. continue. So please continue. So, but thank you so much for, for your story. Continues. Thank you. Uh, anyway, I recently saw the new West Side Story. Oh yeah. Uh, the 1961 version is very dear to me since uh, it's how my best friend since childhood and I initially bonded. Oh. She was named after Natalie Wood, and I was the only kid she knew that had ever even heard of West Side Story. Were 90s kids. Okay. <laughs> uh, I didn't think I could possibly love it as much as I did the 61 version. I was wrong. I was blown away hey. by it. They managed to make it feel so fresh and alive. I wish Tony Kushner had gotten some awards love for his screenplay. Mm-hmm. I love the changes he made to the story, giving Tony some much needed backstory, making Chino a more well-rounded character. Agreed. And making cool all about the crumbling relationships between Riff and Tony. It all worked for me. It was a very I, good adaptation. I, I liked yeah. the, the restaging of cool. I liked the yeah. fight over the gun, like the way yeah. they did the, the choreography. No, the way that they moved some things around and they had, uh, I think they moved... Uh, did, did they well, move? They, I I feel pretty so that it comes after a murder's already been committed, so yeah. she doesn't know yet, and yeah. so that made that scene so much stronger. I feel I thought uh, that was a great idea. It, in the original, uh, in the original staging, and I think they left this in line with the 1961 movie, but uh-huh. in the original staging. Uh, Stay Cool came after the Rumble, like after there was some death. Yeah. Whereas in the original Broadway version, that's where they put G Officer Krupke. Yeah. After the Rumble. That's like this big, fun, silly song. I, it's it's, it's like out of place, really isn't it? Place it's really weird, that. yeah. I, so, uh, they I kept admire that the, from the, the original movie. I admire the original a lot in a lot of ways, but I, I, I think there were definitely mm. things that they were able to improve. Right. Uh, this leads me to my question. Sorry, I'm long-winded. Oh, pishaw. Yeah, everyone uh, says that. Don't do that. Uh, since seeing the movie, I've been in a musical mood, and that mm. includes pro shots. Do those pro shots count as movies when it comes to January? And, uh, and I'm making my best films of 2022. Thanks for all your hard work, Starship. What are pro shots? We are about to look up what pro shots are. Uh, what are pro shot movies? Pro shot. Like, shot on... Pro shot musicals. Hold on. Okay, hold on. We're old. Uh... Uh, we're out of the loop. Oh, 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 oh. This is... Uh... Okay, so I think pro shots... Are uh, instead of yeah okay so here's a pro shot okay this is this is just a term I'd never heard before but we know that we know the phenomenon oh, is, is this like a, a bootleg it, or? It, no it's a professionally photographed rendition of the stage musical oh that's what but that's not called. restaged for theater for example Hamilton okay that was a pro shot okay, I didn't know the... into the woods that version that we all know is a pro shot cats had a pro I, shot I haven't I didn't yeah. know that term but yes it seems I, I'm not entirely sure this is a pro shot it might have just hmm. been an, an interestingly staged version but I think Zoot Suit might have been a pro shot I, th- uh, I think I think pro I think Zoot Suit was I think it's a little bit of both. It it takes the theatrical staging, but it also does some things you couldn't have otherwise. But yeah, so basically it is a professionally recorded stage Stage production. production. They're Uh just doing what they do on Broadway. They do a version specially for the camera. You get shots you wouldn't have been able to get otherwise if you're just in the audience. It's not a bootleg. 
but okay. So what was the question? The question was, how do we feel about pro uh, shots? Yeah. Do do they count as movies? Okay. Is the question. The uh, this question came up when Hamilton came out during the pandemic. This was originally going to be a theatrical release. And then they decided to release it during the pandemic. And frankly, I'm grateful that they did. It was mm-hmm. a it was a fallow time for new material, and a lot of people got to see Hamilton who had never had before. But um, the question arose: Is that a movie or not? Or is it? If it's a movie, is it a documentary? Like, what is that exactly? And a lot of people defaulted to what the Academy says because what the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences decides is quote unquote a movie or a feature film or not, dictates whether or not it's going to be uh, up for awards consideration. Um, If you're part of the Academy, that's important. If you're not, it's not. (laughs) My philosophy about pro shots, and thank you so much for teaching me this term, uh, is they're absolutely movies. You could argue that they're documentaries, or that they are uh, concert films in a way, like you would say something Mm. like... um, Stop Making Sense or The Last mm. Waltz or something where it's mostly just, just documenting a performance, yeah. and which yeah, is co- fine. I think, I think I think if concert musicals count as movies, yeah. then a pro shot is definitely a feature film, especially yeah. if it's... The idea is we're now using the medium of film mm. to uh, broadcast a live performance to a wider audience, yeah. which is what film did f- back in the 30s and 20s. Yeah. When, uh, a lot of this stuff is very stagey. Vaud- vaudeville and touring companies yeah. didn't reach every city, yeah. So, uh, but the cities that had movie theaters, eventually they'd get a filmed production of it. It was exactly. a way to sort of uh, recreate that experience. We're still doing that. Yeah. I feel like it's a little different if you're going to see like a Fathom event where that's broadcast live and it's not recorded and released. I can appreciate that's that. A, that that's a, that's a that's, gray area. That's, that's a, like a like it's a weird technical fine line, that's, perhaps. That's a gray area. But I think something that is shot and staged with film cameras uh, and edited together like a film, and then for, released, and at least for posterity, this in is that the version form, that you, yeah. uh, to to an audience. I think those yeah. definitely count. There's also the question uh, of it though, because like if you're talking about a concert film, like again, Stop Making Sense mm-hmm. or Last Waltz or whatever, or whatever Music you, War. Or, or, music, or, 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 or whatever or, 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 you want. Pick your favorite. Doesn't really matter. The medium is the same. Uh, that's clearly a documentary because people are just performing uh, their music. However, in the case of something like, for example, Hamilton, people are acting roles. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, should those people be eligible for, say, acting awards? To which I say, yes. <laughs> is it is it a little weird that this that their performance was intended for the stage mm-hmm. and now we're considering giving an Oscar? Maybe, but I think this desire to make sure that every single type of film or performance fits tidily inside one label is understandable. We like things well, to be cleanly defined, but it doesn't really work in art very well all the time. I, su- I suppose when you're talking about art in the abstract, but when you're working for an organization like the Academy, you do have to draw a line somewhere. You do. And uh, I don't personally <clears throat> care, though, is my thing. No, so we're, if I, we're audience members. We're not members of the Academy. Yeah. So, yeah. So, like, as a member of Lasca, for example, mm-hmm. if I wanted to, like, I don't know, nominate uh, David Diggs mm. for Best Supporting Actor. I thought it was really, really great in Hamilton. In fact, I think I might have. I don't remember. Mm. Uh, he, uh, I think that would be fair game because Lafka doesn't necessarily have that rule that the Academy has. Yeah. But the Academy does have strict rules. They're entitled to have their rules. It's fine. Some mm. of them are more arbitrary than others, if you ask me. But what are you going to do? But in terms of us, the fans, those are totally movies. Yeah, they're they're recorded um, performances. They are <clears> done professionally. They're edited on purpose to be exactly the way that they are. They're presented in a way that the person presenting the show wanted you to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
they, they straddled the line between concert, movie, documentary, and narrative feature, but yeah. There's been a couple notable ones that I've seen. That version of Into the Woods you mentioned with yeah. Bernadette Peters. I've seen that one. Oh, it's that, that's That's how I saw yeah. Into the Woods. And they even tried to make it a little bit more cinematic by adding, like, photographic effects here and mm-hmm. there. Like, I think there's some flashing effects. There's a bit where the... Evil Queen is like scattering magic beans, and they added these little like video blips to make it look a little bit more. Dynamic. I don't. I've been forever right. since I've seen it, but I believe you. Yeah, I don't remember that. I, I, I saw that one in college. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if it, if it. Uh, no, this definitely counts. What's um, that? Ingmar Bergman's The Magic Flute. Sure. Uh, Ingmar Bergman did a pro shot film version of an opera performance of the Magic Flute, and it's mm-hmm. mostly just pointing the camera at the stage. Yeah. And to throw it up a little bit, Ingmar Bergman would occasionally cut to an extreme close up of somebody in the audience watching. Yeah. So you kind of like just see like a little reaction shot. So it kind of keeps yeah. the like the reality of the stage kind of alive in that one. That one came out in the seventies. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's a terrific movie. Yeah. Um, uh, that that wasn't. I don't mm. think. I think that was staged for the film cameras I have no idea. and it wasn't a live performance for an audience, but there's an audience there and they're still performing live. So I think that yeah. should, should count. But yeah, it's, it's one of those... a famous version of uh, Sweeney Todd from the eighties. Oh yeah. I saw that. Of, I saw that. Uh, Les yeah. from the eighties. Yeah. So yeah, these, I, again, it, I, I see why there's some debate over it, but as far as I'm concerned, we use the language of cinema in a lot of mediums that are not technically considered film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a sitcom uses the language of cinema. Yeah. You know, same language, it's just in a slightly different uh, uh, f- uh, length and uh, serialization format, but it's still cinema. <laughs> I think we get a little, we get a little too, uh, we get our heads up our butts sometimes about that. Anyway, moving on. All right. Uh, here's a letter from Name Redacted. Uh, if, if you don't put your name at the bottom or you say Name Redacted at the bottom, I'm not going to say your name, uh, even if it's in the subject line. Uh, this says, hey guys. Hope all is well. Mm. Uh, you mentioned something on your post-Oscars show that I felt was not only on point but needed further discussion. Okay. And that is the double standards that exist among men and women in Hollywood. Mm. Now, oh, that could mean many things. There's a lot, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, I'm not here to champion the rights of men, as that's not necessary, and it might come off as passe at this point. However, there is a clear discrepancy that I feel could u- uh, use further discussion. In your previous episode... Looking at the Academy Awards ceremony, you mentioned how Regina Hall and Amy Schumer's attempts at comedy where they're coming on to male individuals was not only inappropriate, but also cringy. It also wasn't very funny. Yeah, that's uh, I couldn't agree more. Had the genders been reversed, it certainly wouldn't have been played for comedy, nor would have been seen as humorous. It would have been, it would have been different, almost lecherous. Mm-hmm. I get that the mentality exists that's because it's subverting our expectations, that it's funny, okay, but doesn't mm-hmm. make it right. This double standard has been prevalent for quite a while, and it's never sat right with me. Take the concept of infidelity. Typically in films, when a man cheats, he's a scumbag. How could he do this? He is awful, and he doesn't deserve the person he's with. A woman does it, she's being liberated. She's being set free from a loveless marriage. Uh, Mm. But more importantly, she has a reason. Uh, Now, infidelity is never okay. But why do you think that is viewed through a more acceptable lens with women being the cheater and not men? Uh, there's some film that, there's, versions of that. That, but, that, uh, that gets a little that gets a little murky. When it comes but, to yeah. infidelity, it's yeah. Well, little, let's finish the bit. email. Um, we'll talk about each thing separately. The same can also be said regarding assault in Coming to Number Two America. Prince Hakim's son is conceived when Hakim is practically asleep. This yeah, was brought up talked, when the movie yeah, came out. Yeah, this yeah. Is a thing, and yeah. amazingly, it's played for laughs. If the roles were reversed, it'd be perceived as a ghoulish criminal act that it should be. Again, is I get that it's subverting 
subverting expectations can be funny, but is it really that funny when a man is the victim? Yeah. And don't get me started with older female male relationships. The film Birth with Nicole Kidman was infuriating. That's where she. Yeah. Uh, her her, her movie, dead husband seems to come back in the mind of a of like, of like a, a child. ten year old boy. Yeah. Or I guess he's like twelve. And he says, yeah, yeah. "I am your dead husband reincarnated," and it's weird. And yeah, I've actually never and, seen that. And one. she actually like entertains pursuing a relationship with this boy. Weird. Yeah, I've um, never seen it. I have no idea. Uh, same with the Danish film Queen of Hearts, where a woman begins an extramarital affair with her stepson. Again, if the genders were flipped, we'd be seeing this in a completely yeah, com- that's true. We'd be seeing this completely differently as we should. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you guys have had some of these same wonderings and noticings. Uh, how do you find them? Uh, do and do you find them almost disturbing? Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not here to champion the rights of men, nor do I think that just because it's represented in one way, we should we should see stories with flipped genders. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it's something to consider. Perhaps Hollywood will see that infidelity and these other crimes are wrong, regardless of who's involved. Just curious on your thoughts. Sincerely, Name Redacted. Okay, uh, Name uh, Redacted, that is, that's a fair question. Yeah, now, I think not everything you said is on the same level, because mm-hmm. I think some of them are talking about issues of uh, power and criminality. Mm-hmm. I think... Um, well, and power, I think, is kind of the center of it. Yeah. Uh, and this goes to... This is the two-edged sword of sexism that just sort yeah. of runs deeply through our society. Uh, I, I'm not excusing anything. I'm just kind of explaining what I've observed. Yeah. Uh, in... Just sort of out in most societies, mm-hmm. men are typically uh, seen as aggressors, pursuers. Yeah. That's this the is, expectation this is, this that is, is the, the cli- fear. This is yeah. the cliche. Uh, yeah. As such, um, um, if a man is walking down a street and a woman is walking the opposite way, the man and the woman are going to be reacting to each other differently. Theoretically, yes. Theori- you know, yeah. Just, uh, and uh, men have been encouraged in many recent years to understand how they are perceived out in public. Yeah. How If you are walking toward a woman in a certain way, they're going to get afraid. Are you going to attack them? Probably not. Aggressive. Well, but but that's a, that's an aggressive move. Yes. Okay. Uh, and, you know, and you know she's probably reaching in her purse and looking yeah. for some pepper spray just in case. There's a decent chance that you could uh, be a threat enough to but, make it actual yeah. an actual legitimate concern. Yes. Uh, why do they do this? Well, because that's, assault is a thing. Because and, it's uh, and, way too much of yeah. a thing. Yeah. Uh, so when we see uh, comedy sketches where men are aggressors then all we're seeing is males as aggressors, aren't we? Yeah, and, and we're seeing people make light and of that, because, and it's yeah. horrifying. And uh, also, the two-edged sword of this, as because men are the aggressors, women are now uh, the, the passive party here. In, the, are, in those are, instances, they are, yes. They are yes. the recipients of that aggression. Yeah. Uh, again, a sexist trope that runs through society. Yeah. Not something I'm endorsing. Just to be clear. Uh, and as such, when we have a comedy sketch where the genders are flipped, where the aggressors... The men uh-huh. are now being victimized by the the passive ones, the women. Mm-hmm. That's a juxtaposition. Hence, it's played for laughs. Yeah, it's like, oh, what a defiance of our expectations. And that is, one could say that's irresponsible comedy. One could also say that's a send-up of the way we view gender roles. I think context matters a Con- lot. In context case, matters a lot, and the the skill of the joke also matters a lot. Here, here's what I think it boils down to, and that let's let's focus on that for a second. Was, and I was thinking specifically yeah. of the gag at the Regina, uh, yeah. gag at the Oscars. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I see that's what they were getting at. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Isn't it funny that Regina Hall is doing? We're going to flip this around, mm-hmm. and we're going to be sexist in the direction of men. And, and but, we, we've seen so many gags about men being lascivious to women, right? That it's a bit it's, of a turnabout a, seems a, like a, fair a play for a man, a woman to be humor. lascivious towards men. I get that. Here's here's the thing, though, and we were talking about uh, the issue 
there's multiple issues at hand here. The fundamental issue is that we live in a patriarchal society, and patriarchy hurts everybody, mm. but it definitely creates an expectation of uh, male behavior and to make light of the idea that uh, there are indeed predatory men out there is irresponsible and mm. frankly not very funny to a lot of people because way too many people either have firsthand experience or know people who do of sexual uh, inappropriateness, whether it's uh, on whatever level. Mm. If you switch that around, there's that moment where it's like, oh, okay, so in this case, the man is is being attacked uh, by a woman. Here's the problem, though. You're still making light of, in many cases, a crime. Mm. In the case of coming to America, that is sexual assault. Yes. The gag, so to speak, is that Prince Hakim was sexually assaulted by a woman, and that people make fun of him for that, when in actuality, that's a deeply traumatizing thing. And it's this kind of approach to that terrible mm. situation that makes it harder for men to come out and have these conversations because there's comes with this element of social expectation and shame. Yeah, yeah. You, like you're there's it's impossible a, for that that's supposed to be fun yeah. for men. Did you ever Some see people would, uh, would argue and it's did, terrible. Did you ever see uh, Antoine Fisher? I did not actually. The movie's very much about that. It, it's about um, mm. th this young man who was assault, assaulted by an older woman. Okay, and how how difficult that was for him to uh, yeah. to acknowledge and to say out loud. Yeah, a lot of uh, sexual assault in men is underreported. A lot of sexual mm. assault in general is underreported, mm. but in men, there's that's one of the reasons. Mm. So that sucks. And so I appreciate wanting to turn the tables on the expectation, but uh, regardless, you're still making light of inappropriate sexual behavior, and as a result, there's going to be a lot of people who don't find it funny. Mm. And maybe it's not a great idea for a joke. Yeah. Um, when it comes to marital infidelity, movies do have a tendency to treat uh, women having affairs as a liberation from a patriarchal marriage. This is, mm. this is usually the context in and which again, that plays. This, again, this is... Yeah. yeah, patriarchal is the word. Yeah. Um, it's... It's it's you know, you're you're talking about how infidelity is always wrong, and uh, I'm not well, entirely sure that's a hundred percent true. But the, yeah, these are yeah. stories about how yes, these women uh, typically in these infidelity stories are yeah breaking away from like a, an oppressive kind of yeah, marriage, emotionally abusive, mm. physically abusive sometimes, or at the very least emotionally unavailable. Mm. This is the subject of a lot of Hallmark Christmas movies where a woman is in a relationship with a guy who is completely unavailable for them, and while hanging out with someone at Christmas time, mm. a time which is represents togetherness and living in the moment and sharing rituals together, it, the person who will be with you for all of that is seen as a better romantic match than someone who was in board meetings all day. Mm. That's the cliche, but it, there's a certain amount of truth to that. There's a certain amount of truth that this feels like more like a real relationship. Mm. So it feels like the person is justified in leaving the other person for this other person, whether or not they've actually done anything physical. There's definitely an emotional infidelity involved. So, it, but in that case, yeah. you're just uh, switching partners. You're deciding yeah, this person like, isn't um, right for you and this person is. Yeah, the, the idea of... Uh, I think infidelity is played in many different ways in movies. It's one of the, yeah. one of the more frequently filmed activities. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a lot of different attitudes, and movies have different attitudes about yeah. it. So I don't think it's Sometimes always, it's not a big deal. Sometimes yeah. it's, it's everything. Sometimes no, it's I, enough. Sometimes it's a reason to commit 
crimes sometimes it's just like ah well i did it too so it's fair enough right <laughs> like <laughs> and sometimes people have this doesn't happen too much in movies but sometimes people have open relationships and mm. it's not a big deal literally at all uh, that's uh, yeah there aren't too many movies about open relationships no. i i heard a statistic recently where it's like 15 percent of all couples are just open now so i think which is a, which is a more... significant percentage that's, that's, that's more than big. one in ten um, you know uh it's like fifteen percent of all couples and like six percent of married couples, yeah. something like that. It's but like that's pretty decent. That's They're, like measurable. Yeah. That's that's uh, not an insignificant I'm, number of people. I'm guessing we'll see more of that in movies moving forward. I um, would hope so because it's something that's just completely ignored. And again, what we see represented in our media tells us what's normal. Hmm. And if we never see it, it becomes less normal. Becomes something that we're less comfortable talking about because it's not present in the conversation in a in just a regular casual way it's always got to be like the plot of the film it's never incidental yeah so we need more of that for different types of relationships that are healthy Uh, obviously if they're healthy is what we're talking about uh now when it comes to um age mismatches yeah this uh here's the curious thing because when we see movies about older men creeping on teenage girls Mm -hmm. that's typically seen as very very bad Yes. Uh, that, that's not a healthy thing that man is doing with, no. with that teenage girl. Uh, last year, we had two movies about age mismatched relationships. One was called Licorice Pizza. Yeah. And it was about a romantic relationship between a 15-year-old boy and a 25-year-old woman. Was he, was he 15 when that movie started? Uh, yeah. Jesus. And, I thought he was 17, and I still thought it was bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he's 15, and Jesus yeah, Christ. and she, she's a full decade older than than he is. Yeah. And they kind of have this weird antagonistic friendship slash, slash relationship mm-hmm. over Where the course of the movie. And he's openly it's, attracted yeah. to her, and he says as much. Mm-hmm. And she rebukes his advances, but she's also like, kind, how, of le- kind of letting him like yeah, and, keep them around and, and, like, and again, without if, really rebuking him. If the movie had yeah. been about sort of the way that weird kind of friendship between a younger person and an older person evolved, if it was a friendship, yeah, that would have made it for a better movie. I agree. But they kind of put a button on the romance angle and that... Literally the last line in the movie solidifies that this was a romance this movie. This was a whole romance movie this and whole time. And that's really uncomfortable. Yeah. And, it's and, really gross. And a lot of people came down on Licorice Pizza for the age difference. They didn't like that yeah. the age difference it's was there. They didn't like really that... Creepy. He's technically a minor, and she's in her twenties. Yeah, and people say, "Well, if the if it was reversed, people would be up in arms." Here's the thing: another movie came out last year called Red Rocket, which is about a man in his forties who's a, who has an affair with a seventeen-year-old girl. Yeah, and they actually do sexual things on camera in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, I didn't hear an uproar about Red Rocket. Maybe it was just running in the wrong circles, but I didn't hear that from critics. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear that from you know. Hand-wringing morality I didn't groups. see all about Red Rocket, but my question is this. Did Red Rocket, on as a, a thematically, mm. make it in some way clear that the, the movie or the filmmakers do not approve of this relationship? Do they? Here's my question. Do they have to? Well, it, it affects tone, doesn't it? Yeah. If you're watching something, let's say you're watching a serial killer movie. Mm. And the serial killer movie and the tone of the serial killer movie presents the idea that serial killing is fun and everyone should do it. We might say to ourselves, well, that's in poor taste and maybe irresponsible. <laughs> if, on the other yeah. hand, they're saying this is a terrible thing to do and this needs to be stopped. That's a different uh, approach, isn't I think, it? Well, Red Rocket, is. it was made by a, a filmmaker named Sean Baker. And uh, his style is very lo-fi realism like yeah. he likes to shoot on uh 16 millimeter and uh, he shot his film tangerine on an iphone for goodness sake and uh uh red rocket is about this sort of washed up ex-porn star who's like returned to his little rinky dink town in texas mm-hmm. and is trying to get back on his feet with the people he knew there and he feels like his way back into uh the adult film industry 
is to essentially groom this teenage girl, and he starts having an affair with her. Yeah, and, it's like, terrible. Films it's, her. it's a terrible thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and she uh, is kind of going along with it. I don't think the film... The film is still making this character to be kind of sympathetic because he's really put upon, but he's also kind of a horrible guy. Sure. And he's doing some horrible things. We can understand why a bad person does bad things. The question is, does it romanticize those things? Yeah. Which I would argue Um, Licorice Pizza does. Licorice Pizza does because it's part of this, like, dreamy nostalgia landscape. Yeah. Uh, Red Rocket is a little bit rawer than that. It's a lot more about violence and crime and and moral depravity. So I think that this affair is going on. You do get a point of view on it. Um Maybe that's so, why, I don't know. But, but it, it sort of, it didn't, I think because of that, it didn't sort of spark the same kind of moral outrage, even though it is about a much older man having sex with a minor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you see this a lot throughout uh, you know, a lot of films about older women who have affairs with younger men or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a time when an older man having an affair with a very, very young woman or even a teenager was seen as just something that happened in the world. Well, look at Raiders Woody of the, Allen. We'll look at Raiders uh, of the Lost Ark. Yeah, he talks about how... Uh, she says she was a child, and in she, fact, if you actually do the math... Like she was a teenager. She was, she was affair, like 15, yeah. and he would have been in his mid-20s when they had an affair. Yeah. And that's just thrown out there in mm-hmm. this very popular, family-friendly adventure film and, everyone and likes. It was, it's fucked up. It was made in the early 1980s. This is the time when these, yeah. these, those sorts of relationships were seen on film more frequently. And uh, and they're talking about a relationship that occurred in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Still fucked up. Uh, I'm probably on a list because I looked up like the age of consent laws once, just out of curiosity. I was having a conversation with my wife. Uh, and uh, the age of consent is different from state to state in the United States. Yeah. It changed a lot throughout you know the the country's history yeah it was as low as like 14 or in some states 10 at some point in this country uh so this idea of an older man having a a young woman as a lover a young Mm -hmm. woman a girl a child as a lover yeah let's clarify Uh, yeah i'm not trying to romanticize anything no 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 no. Uh, that was just the wrong choice of words yes yeah uh that was par for the course because of these sexist laws that allowed men to possess girls yeah that was just part of the law at yeah. one point. And we changed the laws because that was a horrible idea. Yeah. Uh, so I think when we're looking at something like Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's drawing on something that was a little bit more recent. When we're looking at two films that came out just last year, yeah, we can start judging on you know gender dynamics a little bit more uh, succinctly. Anyway, it's a complicated issue, but mm-hmm. I think on one hand, you're dealing with the idea of subverting the patriarchy in all of these instances, but in some cases, you're also dealing with a level of criminality, which is wrong regardless of that. So if you want to like say, like, okay, so this person is cheating on their husband, but it's a kind of a liberating experience because patriarchy sucks. Cool, but when sexual harassment or sexual assault is involved, mm-hmm. all you're really doing is saying all you're really doing is making light of it in a different context, and yeah. it's and then I would argue that that's fucked up regardless of what you're doing. I'm not saying that it's like off limits for storytelling, but you have to be careful in how you handle it because you can. There is a responsible way to do these things and an irresponsible yeah. way to do yeah. these things. Uh, okay, let's move on. Uh, but difficult uh, topic. But, but to to wrap it all up, yes, there is a double standard. 
Yeah, true. It's there se- is. It's sexism, and uh, it, it's yeah. it's always been sexism, and it will yeah. continue to be sexism until we just dismantle the system. And we have to do that. Mm. And we, sometimes the penguins going to swim a little bit further in mm. the other way for a while. We need to we mm. need to get it happen. We need to make it happen. So let's do it. Uh, um, here's yeah. a letter from Brian. Hello, Brian. Uh, it's going to start with a list of ten names. Oh, is this uh, like a Johnny Carson thing? We have to see what they all have to what they all have in common, or what well, I, I I've already uh, read a little bit, but okay. uh, so let's see if you can guess who these people are. Okay. Uh, number one, Brittany Slays. Number two, uh, Clementine Deloney. Deloney. Okay. Uh, number three, Melissa Bonney. Number four, Frederica Lana. Number five, Angel Wolf Black. <laughs> number six, Sabrina Cruz. Okay. Number seven, Alessia Scoletti. Number eight, Ren Stillnight and Grace Darkling. Number nine, Nicoletta Rossellini. And number ten, Heather Michelle Smith. Cool. Do you, do you know who any of those people are? Not offhand. All right. Uh, ten women who front metal bands. Awesome! <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about metal and how metal is pretty male-dominated. There aren't yeah. a lot of women in metal. Like we, we, men- we mentioned a couple, but we're not, we don't have our fingers on the pulse of metal right now. And we, you know, like, yeah, Lita yeah. Ford is not the end-all, be-all of that conversation. No, like, so, yeah, yeah. like I, I got a heavy metal box set, one of those ones that yeah. Rhino put out. And uh, there was one track from the band Girl School, mm-hmm. and there was a Lita Ford track. The rest all men. Oh my god! Like that was it. <laughs> what? Come on! Just because it, it was it, it's a male dominated genre. Uh, we were talking about the movie Metal Lords. Ah. Yeah. And I, um, uh, why do I bring this up in your review of Metal Lords? You stated that heavy metal is a sexist form, and there aren't many women in the genre. I felt it necessary to disabuse you of this notion. <laughs> now this is where I must take you to task. As okay. a longtime metalhead, I find the characterization of metal as a sexist genre to be ill-informed. Hair metal and pop metal of the late 70s and early 80s was extremely sexist, and most of the songs were about sex and drugs. Most metalheads today hate hair metal, both <laughs> both because it was bad music and yeah. because of how sexist it was. But it was one of the most popular music genres of the time, so what does that say about pop music? It says um, a lot, yeah. I think the misconception about, uh, misconception about metal is based on a narrow view of the genre. Which is unfortunate because metal is vast and has numerous subgenres, but is also really hard to find. For example, my favorite band, Unleash the Archers. I've, awesome name. That's a great band name. I've never heard on the radio, in movie, or on TV. I found them by accident on YouTube. And nearly all of the bands I listened to, I had to search for, not just hear them on the radio and say, oh, that's a catchy song. I could go on, but I just loathe when metal as a whole is demonized or diminished because of its worst yet somehow most popular subgenre. <laughs> I will leave you with this question. When was the last time you found a song you like from somewhere other than the radio or in a movie or on TV? Brian from NorCal. Okay, uh, um, first off, I apologize if we, we made it seem like we were characterizing, we're painting all of heavy metal mm. with the brush of sexism. Mm. I think we were trying uh, I to I think we were trying to explain that there's a lot of like history of sexism in it. Yeah. There's a lot of sexist uh, uh, songs and attitudes, especially from the early era. Uh, and uh, in our ignorance, maybe we didn't know enough to say like how yeah, far well, the medium has come, and we apologize for that. This I was speaking with my personal experience with yeah. metal, uh, which ends at a certain point. Sure. Uh, and in fact, um, metal kind of died, at least in my mind, mm-hmm. and in I think the popular consciousness as well, but mm-hmm. I can't speak for others, uh, when Nirvana hit. 
Uh, metal. That's was, when it's that's when it stopped getting a lot of radio play. Yeah, that's that's when it became yeah. a lot less popular. I think Metallica continued for a little bit. After oh, but that. there's definitely a few bands that but, definitely uh, had continued success. Yeah. But overall, there used to be multiple stations in LA dedicated to metal. Yeah, there's KNAC. That was the Hard Rock station. Yeah, pirate, pirate Radio. radio. Pirate, at least those two. One hundred point three Pirate Radio is an awesome station. Yes, it was. Mm. But they were like pretty much dedicated heavy metal stations, and then around the early '90s, they just. Went away yeah, and became they, uh, alternative. Yeah, because grunge and alternative became the more yeah. just preferred popular forms. And and also, you know, yeah. r- the rise of hip-hop and yeah. uh, so, just a lot of other music so genres metal, came in. But, but much like all genres, regardless of medium, whether you're talking about music or film mm. or books or whatever, um, once a genre is established and gets an audience, it never entirely goes away. It just kind of leaves the mainstream for a while or isn't like, or doesn't get as much press. Like, you can still see... People always talk about how the Western died. There's still plenty of Westerns being made every year. Oh, all the time. Not as many as there used to be, but they're getting made all the time. So just because metal isn't the mainstream the way it was in the 80s and the early 90s, doesn't mean it went away. We just don't know as much about it because we're not metalheads. And uh, you know what? If we spoke with too much authority about something we didn't know enough about to be authoritative, thank you for calling our attention to that. That's fucked up. We, we did that wrong. So thank you so much. We'll be we'll try to be more careful about stuff that we don't actually know a lot about in the in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding um, music that we found outside of the radio or whatever mm-hmm. like that, the the biggest discovery for me uh, was someone that I discovered along with my uh, partner uh, Michelle over the course of the pandemic. Uh, we discovered and deeply fell in love with a country artist named Orville Peck, who yeah. is currently my favorite like person (laughs) he's just awesome uh orville peck uh is a queer country singer and his voice is like somewhere between roy orbison johnny cash and elvis presley it's just (laughs) it's rich and sonorous and beautiful uh Uh, his orville peck uh born in south africa and now lives in canada true but he's got a lot of country music cred and he's had two great albums so far i think at least two He's got a new one just came out called Bronco. Um, watch his music videos. There's a lot of really great uh, sort of short form queer storytelling uh, mm. in those. He does a lot of songs about you know being in love with men and male relationships that he's been in. Uh, his latest single is called Come On Baby Cry, which is about trying to get a macho, uh, uh, a guy who's all caught up in his masculinity to admit his frailties. And it's actually very sweet, but also incredibly catchy. I love it. Um Orville Peck's uh, gimmick is that he has never shown his face. He has like kind of like a Lone Ranger domino mask, and then he has uh, tassels sewn to the bottom of it that like sort of sway as he walks and dances. It looks really cool, actually. It's kind of hard to describe, but when you see it, you go, I, I see why that's badass. Um, love him to pieces. Please listen to Orville Peck. He's so damn cool. I'm such a fan. Um, I think he's doing some really, really great work. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's that's someone I discovered recently outside of the, the what would be considered uh, the conventional means. I was very bad about listening to the radio as a kid. Um, mm. I would hear some popular songs, but I didn't know the artist. Um, this has uh, driven my wife completely crazy because she's a rock <laughs> snob par excellence. Uh, so, oh, yeah, I know that. Who did that one? Uh, I heard. I finally heard the song No Scrubs for the first time, like, a month ago. A uh, month ago you yeah, heard that? like, some, some wow. kind of just eluded my attention. Uh, there were oh a lot of just God. popular songs that I never got from the radio. Wow. Uh, 
I always discovered all of my music from <laughs> non-conventional means. I would hear something on TV or in a movie, and that would mm. get my attention. Sometimes. But, um, but what, g- g- who's, who's someone you discovered relatively recently? Uh, I'm very fond of an Australian blues musician named C.W. Stone King. Awesome name. Uh, C.W. Stone King uh, has this very strange, affected stage persona, mm. where he wears this kind of 1920s dandy, uh, almost um, barbershop quartet kind of shirt. Mm-hmm. Plays uh, plays guitar and I'm looking at a picture of him right now. He looks yeah. like uh, who does he look like? He looks like uh, mm-hmm. he looks a little bit like Truman Capote. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. he's got a bow tie and a and a, mm-hmm. a hat. Yeah, and you know the, those hats that people used to wear. Uh, the hats, a, a straw hat. I think you're looking for. Well, this is actually not a straw hat. He's actually mm-hmm. wearing more of like a like a hat. It's a I just realized I don't wearing, know what hats look like. He's wearing a top hat. I, that's not what I'm looking at. Yeah, I just realized I, I don't know what hats look a like. Top hat. You know, people um, used to wear in movies. He uh, he's Austra- he's Australian, but he also has sort of mixed. And I'm not sure if this is organic or if this is just sort of part of his persona. Mm. But he's kind of mixed it with this weird kind of Cajun Delta Blues kind of accent. Mm. It's like half Australian, half Cajun accent, and he sings a. Uh, a kind of lost comedic genre of uh, roots music called hokum, which is like semi-comedic, a little bit raunchy, playful blues music that used to be played in minstrel shows. Okay. Uh, And it's awesome music. Okay. It's, uh, it's has a lot of power and humor to it. And it feels really kind of scary and it's really authentic at the same time. But he's, he's a new musician. He's still act, He's still uh, performing these days. I got to see him in concert. Oh, that's awesome. Um, he doesn't come to America too often. He mostly just tours in Australia. Yeah. But uh, I saw him in Silver Lake because, of course, he played in Silver Lake. I, I tried to get some Orville Peck tickets and I just couldn't like afford uh-huh. them for a variety of reasons. And um, But he was, play- he was playing like somewhat nearby not that long ago. Mm-hmm. And I didn't go, but I was on the website. And then I got a text like last week saying, hey, we hope you enjoyed the Orville Peck concert. Would you like to get tickets to something else? I'm like, I didn't go, you asshole. How did you get this number? (laughs) Stop calling me. You jerk. I wanted to go. I couldn't. You. But yeah, if if you're into like blues and roots music, listen to some uh, C.W. Stone King. I got his last record. His last record was released in 2014. He doesn't put out records so often. Uh, The the title was Gone Boogaloo. And uh, G-O-N apostrophe, Gone Boogaloo. And um, if you read the liner notes, he recorded it uh, on magnetic tape. Oh. And the only way he figured out how to record it and mix it was to essentially perform it live. Yeah. So he has, like, the background singers and his guitar and, like, his mic kind of moving back and forth throughout the room to adjust the volume. Oh, interesting. As as he performed it live. So I would love to see... I wish I could have seen a video of him recording that. You get to, like, the background singers are, like, kind of wailing in the back. Until gloriously Um, lo-fi. That's amazing. And and yet it sounds amazing. You don't get that kind of, like, raw... It's not amaturish. It just sort of feels old fashioned. Like it just yeah. has this this. Well, it doesn't. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't have recording. that. Po- it isn't polished within an inch of its life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's got. It's got that. Ah, oh, that that sounds really cool. I'll yeah, I, I really what's, love what's his name again? C W Stone King. C W. Uh, okay, so I recommended Orville yeah. Peck. You recommended C W Stone King. Stone I, King uh, is all one word. Uh, and I, I discovered C W Stone King uh, because they were selling his records uh, at a clothing store next door to the movie theater where I work. <laughs> 
I just nice. went. I just went in there because I had my time Random, off. Like, I don't yeah. know where I'm going to go. I'll just go into this overpriced clothing store. It's called. Um, it's called Mr. Freedom is the, the name of the oh. clothing store. And okay. they sell like vintage blue jeans that they're selling for like $800 a oh. pair. I'm not getting into the clothes down there. Oh, um, my God. But they did have like CDs in the case. Like, well, what kind of music does a vintage $800 blue jean store sell? <laughs> and there's this really interesting uh, photograph of C.W. Stone King in his suit. And he had his face painted up to look like a skull. It's like, okay. okay, that's interesting enough for me to risk fifteen dollars on. That's that's a Whitney thing. That's <laughs> so, something Whitney. So would I bought these records. Like, yeah, this this is good stuff. And I got his other two records mm-hmm. eventually. And uh, yeah, I really fell in love with C.W. Stone King. Uh, I wish he were more prolific. Yeah, I would buy more of his records. But there's just the three, so I'm kind of kind of finished with him now. Okay. Um, all right, I think we have time for one more letter. All right, let me. Oh, sorry, I was busy looking up C.W. Stone King. Yeah, well, we all we all love C.W. I haven't listened to C.W. Stone King, but I will. Okay. Uh, here is a letter from, here's a letter from Dr. Nova. Hi, Dr. Nova. Good to hear from me again. From Dr. Nova occasionally. Uh, hi, Biz and Rockmeister. Oh yeah, you can call me Rockmeister McCool if you wish. Uh, there are plenty of videos on movies to watch before you die. I like planning ahead. So what are some movies I should watch after I die? (laughs) I have often thought of this. Uh, sincerely, Doctor Nova. I've often uh, thought of, I I had this idea a long time ago when I was uh, a, an editor at a website, mm. and it was this this was a very popular thing at the time. Movies supposed to see before you die, and I'm like, let's do some all the best afterlife movies. And you're supposed to watch them after you die. So uh-huh. films like Defending Your Life would be right. a really good one, or maybe Heaven Can Wait, the Robert, the Warren Beatty version. Uh, or here comes Mr. Jordan, the original film that that's based on. They're both wonderful. Yeah. Uh, uh, so there, that's there's a, a really wonderful. Here's here's the film you watch uh, after you die. You watch Hirokazu Koreeda's Afterlife, which I was waiting about for you to bring um, that up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I haven't af- seen it, so I'll let you go. Afterlife, one of the best films of the '90s. Mm-hmm. Not exaggerating. Uh, a wonderful film. Uh, it's about a group of people who are gathering in uh, sort of this outdoorsy, open, uh, walled cabin place almost feels like day camp but it's people from all walks of life right uh, in japan they're all japanese uh and they're just sort of gathering they're saying hello there's old people and young people there's some children there's some you know, teenagers uh, everybody is there and they're just saying oh how are you doing oh i'm doing just fine and uh then the camp counselors sort of get up in front of everybody and they say okay everybody thanks for coming you're all dead this is the afterlife here's the way this works you have a couple days to think of one memory your most cherished memory from when you were alive. Come up and then bring it to us. And what we are, are filmmakers. We, we, the camp counselors, are the filmmakers of the afterlife. And we are going to recreate that memory on film. And then when we screen it for you, you'll watch it in a theater. And when the lights go up, you've ascended. You're gone. Yeah. That's the one thing you'll ever, the only one thing you'll remember. Everything else will be gone out of your head. That's the only thing you can take with you. It's this one moment. Mm. And everybody says, well, okay. And they get started. Uh, they talk to, uh, like, a, a young girl. She's, like, maybe 13 years old, and she died. And her happiest memory is going to Disneyland. Okay, And they okay. say, okay, we, we can do that. A lot of people your age choose Disneyland. So we can do, we know how to film Disneyland. Right. Uh, some people don't know. They don't know what they're, what they're going to choose. And the counselors are, like, trying to go through their lives. Well, is there something, you know, a person you remember or a pet you had or a, a thing you owned or a trip you went on? What, what do you remember? What do you own? Oh, I don't know. Um, there's some ironic things. They have a married couple who aren't interacting. They're making their film separately. Uh, 
his happiest memory is sitting on a bench with her when they're very old and they're just sort of sitting there and he just sort of realized what a blissful life they had together. Hmm. Whereas that same moment for her was a moment of pain and panic where she realized everything had fallen apart in their marriage. Oh, God. So, uh, <laughs> so that's not her happiest memory That's such at all. a bummer. That's a bummer. Yeah. That's uh, and, of course... This not only brings up some very interesting questions about the afterlife and what the kinds of uh, memories you would want to take with you. you. You're, of course, playing along as you watch this movie. What yeah. memories would I take? What sort of yeah. things would... It's a what if mm. that inspires the audience and exactly. ma- on his imagination. Uh, you're wondering what you would do, yeah. But what makes afterlife so impre- impressive is that it is also very explicitly about the very function of cinema. It is to feed your memories back to you, isn't it? It's about to capture those grand feelings and give you something to take with you uh, your whole life. Hmm. It's about the difficulty of creating those memories and the special effects needed, all the practical effects that are needed to make those films. Uh, Golly, is it great. That's the film I would want to take into the afterlife with me that is about the afterlife. Okay, I didn't realize uh, it was no. the film you want to take into the well, afterlife. It's a film I would want to like, watch after I that's die. That's a slightly high, that's a slightly high. That's a kind of a heavy order. But let's let's see yeah. if let's say you know we're we're in the afterlife. We've died. There's an afterlife, and sure. it's and it resembles a movie theater. What are you seeing in there? Oh, I want to see the movies that great filmmakers made after they died. So the filmmakers get to keep on making movies. I had a, I had a dream once when I was a teenager, and it was maybe the best. <laughs> Maybe the best dream I've ever had. Like mm-hmm. I, this, it's definitely right up there. Um, I dr- I grew up in Pasadena, California. Pasadena, California used to have more independent movie theaters than any city in America, except for New York City. Mm-hmm. It had a lot, so there were a ton of independent movies. There was always something interesting playing somewhere. I knew where all of them were. But in this dream, I found a new one, a theater I'd never been to before. I just wandered. I turned the wrong corner. And now I'm here, and there's an opening of a brand new movie. A lot of people are there, and I decide to go in and check it out. And who is there? Orson Welles is there. Frank Capra is there. Cary Grant is there. All of these like famous golden age of Hollywood people who have long since passed on, mm-hmm. uh, they're all there. And what I realize is that I have somehow stumbled into heaven, uh-huh. and in heaven... Everything is fine. Everything is fine because people get to keep making movies. And Orson, we're here for the premiere of a new Orson Welles movie where he once again had final cut and had no budget limitations. <laughs> so we're seeing whatever he actually wanted to do. I'd be That's what I want to see in the afterlife is I want to yeah. see what people still kept making when all of a sudden they didn't have to deal with any bullshit anymore. Here's the real question. Let's say Orson Welles does like yeah. no more studio interference. Sure. No more cuts. Yeah. No more budget problems. He just gets to do whatever he wants. Yeah. What if it sucks? Then that's going to be interesting. <laughs> what if being unfettered is the thing that was bad for him? And you know what? Way? Then that will be interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. Because that's kind of what I, that's what I want. Can, can filmmakers have different phases of their career and arcs and ebbs and flows even after their death? There's a lot of filmmakers who had a chance to make a deeply personal project and whiffed it for one reason or another. It just didn't turn out very good. There's a lot of people... I would argue that Robert Rodriguez is one of his best films is a film made with a lot of studio interference, The Faculty. That's, that's a very that's a studio well picture. That's yeah. a studio picture. He made that for a studio. It was written... It was, it was not like a passion project for him. I think but it's actually, very well constructed. Uh, I think he's stronger as a filmmaker when he actually has like bigger budgets and studio money. I tend to I, agree. I love, I love Spy Kids. I think his uh, I think his early work was notwithstanding when he mm-hmm. had like a lot of passion for it, but he also like had Mariachi, that kind of thing. Yeah, El Mariachi Desperado. He had some grounding there, but 
eventually he let his imagination run havoc and it just became unfocused. Mm. But beyond that, but whatever, who cares? I want to see the movies they're still making. Because in my head, if there is an afterlife, I don't personally believe there is, but if there is, I would want them to still be making movies if that's what they want to do. And in my head, in this dream, they were. Right. So those are the movies you see after you're dead are the movies people are still making after they die. Because hmm. you can't see them here. Oh, all right. That's that's my fantasy. Right. Uh, uh, um, I'm trying to think of this. But there's I'd be, pl- yeah. What I'd be interested to know is... Um, because filmmakers evolve over their lives. Of and in fact, uh, a lot of filmmakers tend to make different kinds of movies uh, when they're older mm-hmm. than when they're younger. Martin Scorsese would not have made The Irishman when mm-hmm. he was in his 20s. Oh, Clint Eastwood, when he was started directing movies, he was directing much angrier films. Oh, yeah, and, and yeah. He, he ended up being this sort of like... His fil- films now are all very calming, uh, and they're very yeah. slow and downbeat, and they don't really yeah. climax. Yeah, kind of... It's not the same filmmaker mm-hmm. who did uh, High Plains Drifter and Blame Misty for me. They're mm-hmm. a very different guy, yeah. Yeah, you look at something like Hereafter or Sully. Like, those yeah. are very different movies. Very different, he changed. Uh, so when you meet that dead filmmaker in the afterlife mm-hmm. uh, are what, they, is, what is being dead done yeah, to their art who exactly. knows are, are they are they young again are they going to keep on making the kinds of films they were making near the end of the I don't lives? know that's a question yeah. I would love to find out yeah. I would like to think that when you die every single person you've ever been still goes on with you everyone mm-hmm. you've ever been is still inside you somewhere right. even if you outgrew them even if uh, you think things happened that changed you there's still a part of you that's who you were when you were 10 mm-hmm. when you were 20 when you were 30 however old you are there's still a part of you that's in there yeah you could be able to access that if you wanted i don't know we're just talking about fantasy right now but yeah <laughs> that's for me that's the fantasy because there's a lot of really really fun films about uh, ghosts death the afterlife mm. uh truly madly deeply is a wonderful film it's so good it's yeah. uh, it's basically the british version of ghost came out like right around the same time from director anthony Minghella, except uh the patrick swayze part is played by alan rickman uh-huh. A very sexy Alan Rickman. Uh, but it's a very sweet, very subtle film about... Um, he comes back because his uh, fiancé or wife, uh, she can't get over her grief. Uh-huh. So he decides to come back, but he can never leave her apartment. So every time she goes out, she's having experiences that pull her further away from him. And every time she comes back, she's just living in the past. And it's all about basically moving on. And it's incredibly sweet, incredibly funny, and very sad, but in a good way, in a very positive way. Mm. The right kind of sad. Um, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah. Mm. Anyway, um, I guess that's it. That's a good place to end it there. Best films to see after you die. Uh, <laughs> love I'd love to it. see movies about the afterlife that uh, the people in charge of the afterlife, the beings, the energies, yeah. the gods, whatever Whoever you like. Is, yeah. Uh, kind of snicker at because they got it wrong. Oh yeah! Like, uh, like I'd love to hear their shop talk. Oh, mm-hmm. no, that's totally wrong. It's like yeah. watching a medical show with my mom, who's a nurse. Like, oh, they do that wrong, and that's wrong too. There was a there, there's a comic strip called Hark of Vagrant, mm. uh, done by Kate Beaton. I think she's still doing it. I haven't I haven't checked back in there for like a long time. But um, she did a lot of uh, stuff about like history and literature. And one of my favorites was just Dracula reading. Some like teen vampire romance. I don't think it was actually Twilight. But he was reading. <laughs> that's, that's some, what the, what yeah, he's, to, he's so. just reading some popular new vampire book, and he's just like, "Ha! That would never happen." And he's just, <laughs> he's just eating popcorn very happily. He's just having the time of his life. Yeah, 
Sure. I, I would love, I'd love to sit next to this like incorporeal being that lets like you know runs the rules of the afterlife yeah. and watch like Enter the Void or something that's like explicitly yeah. about dying. It's like Gaspar yeah. Noe has no idea. Exactly. Like, I, that would be hilarious, yeah. right? Anyway, that is it for we've got mail. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, I will be uh, actually out for a bit this coming week. I'm taking some time off uh, at the behest of many. Still feel kind of guilty about it. So there won't be a lot of work uh, out, but we do have a few episodes going live on the Patreon. We have uh, our big Iron List episode, which is, as usual, is like around two hours long, uh-huh. uh, where uh, we're talking about the best films that happen to begin with the letter E. They have nothing else in common. <laughs> Uh, so that's coming up next week, and then the week after that, we'll be back to doing our usual rigmarole, and it's a ton of stuff, and I can't wait to do it. Uh, we also have some changes coming to the Patreon. Uh, not not a lot. Most of the stuff is staying about the same, uh, but uh, we're going to have a few different offerings there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, check out for an update uh, in the coming days. And... Um, yeah, I guess that's that. If you want to uh, email us and have your letter read on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And, of course, we have a P.O. box for those who prefer writing a physical letter. Whitney, what is that? Uh, write us uh, to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641-565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah, and, of course, uh, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. Um, oh, also, while uh, while I am out, the, uh, the soap store will be uh, put on uh, sort of pause. Uh, so if you look on Etsy, it won't be available to buy soap for about a week. You can just say, and then it'll come back. You can just say you're on vacation. I'm on vacation, but my point is that the store is also on vacation because it won't be around to ship soap. Are, are but you, it'll be coming back soon. Are you excited about where you're going? Did you want to say or do you want? I don't want to. I don't. I keep it a little private. But we oh. are we're going away a little bit, and I am very excited. Uh, it's been a while since we've had like a proper vacation that wasn't like a work vacation or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so this is. Um, yeah, I'm, well, I am excited. Well deserved, also. Oh, that's very kind of you. I, I part of me feels like there's no such thing. It's as a, I couldn't possibly deserve a vacation. But in any case, people have been telling me to take one for a long time, so I'm going to take them up on that. Um, so thank you, everybody, once again. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, yeah, we'll be back to our usual shtick pretty soon. So thank you, everybody. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Whitney.